0: are made possible by donations from people like you.
1: So um, last last fortnight we had a a, a one day or an extra extended period of sitting and discussion. And um, I presented a talk called Beyond Secularism, Revisioning Religious or Spiritual Life for the Challenges of the 21st Century. And then we had a discussion about that in the morning. Um, It it wasn't meant to be a radical departure from Zen, but um, it did raise a lot of questions and concerns for some members of the Sangha who were present and uh, so I'm hoping to today to be able to address any of those concerns. bearing in mind that confusion and doubt are always part of the zen path in terms of uh, how that sits with the awakening of faith and uh, so it's okay to experience doubt and confusion i've certainly been there many times myself and it's always a work in progress and an ongoing journey to figure out what all this means for us on a personal level I'd just like to start with a quote from uh, a Japanese philosopher called Nishitani, from a book, Religion and Nothingness. The fundamental meaning of religion, what religion is, is not to be conceived of in terms of an understanding of what it has been. Our reflections take place at the borderline, where understanding of what has been constantly turns into an investigation of what ought to be. And conversely, where the conception of what ought to be never ceases to be a clarification of what has been. So in a sense, Last Fortnight was an invitation to expand on the uh, the kind of vision we set out in the Osway. Oz Zen Study Program, the Oz Zen Way, back in February, and uh, just add a little bit more depth to the religious dimension of our practice, and uh, just to invite you all into what that means to you on a personal level, and also on a sangha or organizational level. Um, so I'd like to, to give a little bit more background to that, um, and uh, today, and um, that will be on, you know, developing my or our understanding of how Buddhism has been evolving in the West to begin with. And how I, I see Zen as being part of what I call a fourth way. Uh, to quote from our study program back in February, the Ozen way is an attempt to do a preliminary sketch of how we fit into the larger pantheon of global Buddhism. And then how we fit into Western Buddhism. And what kind of Western Buddhist project are we cultivating? And to become more conscious and intentional about this, to reflect upon this. Secondly, today, I want to say something about Soto Zen Priests and the Jikai Ceremony. Then I want to illustrate the difference between no gain and for gain as applied to ritual. Some... Um, Uh, It's important for us to try and get an understanding of ritual and how that fits into our Zazen practice of no gain. And you can interpret no gain also as non-separation or non-duality. So what does religious practice mean from the perspective of non-duality, non-separation? And I'll give a couple of examples. I'll use a liturgy, the example of the verse of the Kisa that we just recited earlier on, and also the case example of bowing. Uh, Finally, I want to conclude with describing Zen as a broad church, an expression which comes from my previous engagement with the Anglican Church many years ago. So the background. Let me give some, some background on my thinking about this. The catalyst for this talk was our registration as a religious organization. As all of you know, it was important to me to separate OzZen from Dr. Andrew Tuttle's psychotherapy practice and business. And, uh, and and now we've managed to do that. And with with um, very generous donations, OzZen now has, has its own insurance policy and in cover. If we hadn't have done that, I was finding the boundaries were getting too blurred between my psychotherapy practice and my, and the Zen practice. So that was a really important step in, in creating uh, Zen as a separate identity to my business. So that leads to the next important point. In my previous talk, I, I stated there are basically three ways in which Buddhism has evolved and adapted to Western culture actually on reflection i think there's actually four ways and i'm going to call the ozen way the fourth way so i'll just go through the first other three ways to begin with so the, the first way in which buddhism has come to the west is what you might call traditional religious buddhism um, thai and burmese monastics uh, living in western countries as have established monasteries tibetan monks have established monasteries and, and um, also in the United States of America there are some Zen monasteries as well that have been established and we could say that these this particular adaptation of religious Buddhism to the west is a kind of um maintains a traditional connection to monastic Buddhism and uh there's some and it also maintains a hierarchy between monks and the laity However, there have been some adaptations to Western culture. So, for example, the uh, feminism has influenced uh, a lot of the ways in which uh, Buddhism has been taken into the West as well. So that's the traditional religious Buddhism. Um, The second not as not maybe quite as large but what I'm what I was calling last week last time secular Buddhism as primarily identify that with Stephen Batchelor's work and organisation where Stephen argues that um, you can basically um, separate uh, uh, Buddhism from its religious context and religious history and culture and traditions and at the same time he argues that he going back to the original teachings of the Buddha, of the Buddha as, as best he can through the Pali texts, um, that his teachings are very authentic to the original teachings of the Buddha. And I really enjoy Stephen Batchelor's books and I highly recommend them. The other main way that uh, Buddhism has come into the West is through what we might call secular mindfulness. And as we talked about last time, secular mindfulness totally divests uh, mindfulness practice from its uh, Buddhist tradition and culture um, and that's understandable, um, you wouldn't be able to bring um, mindfulness into schools and other secular institutions if that wasn't the case. I would also include within that secular movement um, independent spiritual teachers, which many of you are familiar with, some of who identify with the tradition and others who don't. To just give a few names that many of you might have know of, um, Shante. Muji, Eckhart Tolle, uh, Byron Katie, and contemporary Avaita Vedanta teachers such as Rupert Spira, to name just a few. I'm not quite sure, and I don't know the details of this, but I, I, I imagine some of those are run as quite profitable enterprises, and often they generate quite healthy incomes. So then I think, we have what, a, what we might describe as the fourth way, and the way I identify most strongly with. And I think it's probably, maybe the most popular form of Zen practice in the West. And I would describe it really as a post-monastic practice paradigm, um, while maintaining its identification as Buddhist religious practice. But it's also inclusive of practitioners who don't necessarily describe themselves or identify themselves as Buddhists, But see themselves as fellow travelers or spiritual friends. These practitioners are also crucial to maintaining our Sangha. I would place most of the ordinary mind Zen teachers in this category, the fourth way category, but maybe not all of them, I'm not sure. I would also place the Sambo Zen lineage or the Diamond Sangha lineage in this category. My teacher, Barry Majid, has worked very hard to eliminate the hierarchy between monastics and householder practitioners in the United States. He was one of the founders of the Lay Zen Teachers Association. And Barry has always maintained that the Dharma can be transmitted and practiced outside of the monastery, with as much authenticity and sincerity as within a monastery. I fully adhere to that principle. Also, like traditional religious Buddhism, we do our best to make the teachings freely available, operating as a charity dependent upon donations. So that's my description of what I would call the, the four different ways in which Buddhism has been adapting to the West. Now I want to say a little bit about priesthood in Jukai. And I'm not an expert on this and, um, and be interesting what perspectives Nettie can bring to this next fortnight. Um, let me just start by saying is in the 19th century in Japan, it was made possible for ordained priests to get married and then many Soto Zen priests began running family family temples on a full-time basis. In some ways, I guess, the priest was like a full-time Christian priest, supported by the local population through donations given for funerals and other ceremonies. In the West, the population of Buddhists is not really big enough to support full-time priests. So most Soto Zen priests in the West are really what you might call lay priests, paradoxically, in the sense that they also have to make their living unless they are retired or have private means. Um, This tends to blur the distinction between ordination and lay practice in the West. And even today, despite being home to thousands of temples, Japan has comparatively few live in permanent monastic communities and the priests commonly marry have families and may work jobs outside of temple functions further obscuring the distinction between ordained life and lay life in the west most of the monastics or priests in some communities have outside jobs and families while some lay people may live and work at their centers and train full-time Again, blurring the distinctions between lay and ordination. Maybe one of the best ways of understanding priestly ordination in the West is maybe it's become primarily a mark of a deepened commitment to the path and a deeper responsibility to one's center and teacher. That's an observation made by Sean Murphy, who's a teacher in the White Plum Asanga. So, what are the differences between priests and teachers? Basically, as in the West, priests are responsible for developing expertise in ceremonies, rituals, liturgy, that kind of thing. They may also do some counseling. They may work as chaplains as well, and that kind of, uh, in prisons or um, in in, in uh, palliative care and other places like that. Um, I'm planning to be ordained next year um, and not quite sure of the time or the date, but planning to do that with the uh, at the same time as we have uh, the Ju- Jukai ceremony. Hopefully, maybe late March, early April, and uh, uh, Diane Rosetta is going to be my uh, ord- ordaining uh, teacher uh, Diane was uh, ordained by Charlotte Joko back in 1994. Um, Barry chose not to be ordained, so Barry can't actually ordain me, um, but um, uh, Barry will be present at the ceremony. Both Diane and Barry will have to come in through Zoom. Um, part, what, part, One of the reasons for me taking that step is I wanted to open up Ozzen to the possibility of people who may feel a calling to a a priest kind of role. And um, some people feel more uh, drawn towards a priest role than a teacher role. Some people feel more drawn to a teacher role than a priest role. And some people can wear both hats, priest and teacher. And also, given the fact that Funerals, unfortunately, are a fact of life. Um, At some point, um, I think it'll be a really good idea for me to um, be competent in those kinds of rituals, um, for me to participate in them as a priest as well, and to be able to offer that to the Sangha. I guess a lot of this also arose for me because of, the, um, the move to do the precepts this year. It's the first time as a teacher I've been involved in a precepts group and it's gonna be the first time as a teacher I will be the preceptor for the Jukai ceremonies. And uh, that led to a great deal of reflection on that and what that meant to me and to others. And um, you know, I think fundamentally Jukai is really, it's the, the rite of passage into taking on the identity of a Buddhist practitioner. Um, and uh, one of the uh, nice things about that is uh, uh, in, in many, many Zen centers, it's traditional to take on a Dharma name or a Buddhist name. And um, um, that was something that um, my teacher, Barry Majid dropped, but I've had discussions with Barry and he's happy for me to be able to offer that to people too. So. When we move into Jukai next year, I'd like to give that as an option to people. You can either be given back your name that you currently have on your birth certificate or we might be able to come up with a Buddhist name for you. And um, there are some beautiful Buddhist names and uh, and I think um, um, they have a lovely kind of uh, way of connecting with our, with our country, with the environment with our mountains and rivers and uh, and also more abstract qualities uh, such as wisdom and completeness and so forth. And uh, the Buddhist kinds of names that um, you'll come across are things like um, uh, Diamond Conan, uh, so, Diamond and Conan are, are four different names. That means great fullness, broad patience, or Eno, great mirror, ability. I'm not quite. I mean, Mushin is a name that uh, was in one of Joko Beck's parables. Uh, I'm not quite sure that there's the mu and there's the shin. Shin usually is something to do with heart, mind, but these the, these these words can vary according to the intonation. Uh, our Sangha member, Larry, knows more about Japanese language than me, and he could he could explain that to us uh, in, in another way later on. Um, and of course, the importance of Jukai is taking refuge, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. We've had quite a few discussions about that. These are all ritualized performances or, or, or enactments. And I, wonder, I want to make a distinction between and no gain Zazen, which is what we practice, and no gain rituals, because I think they're, they're a continuation. In a sense, we could call it making the invisible visible. Rituals are making the invisible visible. That's a quote from John Dido Lurie. Um, so um, it, no gain is, we've talked about this quite a bit, it's the idea of, meditation practice not being a means to an end it's not something that uh, we're not trying to become buddhas we are expressing and realizing the buddha that we already are and um, and so that notion of no gain and that notion of non-separation from this moment is extended to rituals are just another form of practice like meditation so let's so let's take liturgy Um, In Zen Buddhism, most Zen centers have a formal liturgy book and services are held on a regular basis. This is one aspect of how daily practice of Zen ritual brings the sacred to life. So let's use the example of the verse of the Kisa or the Rogue Chant. When Dogen Zenji went to China as a young man and began to practice at the Tiantong Monastery in 1223, He found that in the monk's hall, the monks rested the folded okisas, okisas being the formal term for kisa or monk's robe, atop their heads with veneration and chanted the verse of the kisa after every morning zazen, every day. There's a lovely book by a, a Zen teacher called Shohaku Okamura called Living by Vow. And this is a quote about Dogen's experience of that as a young man. This is a quote from one of Dogen's chapters in the Shobo Genzo. Uh, He says, at that time, I felt that I had never before seen such a gracious thing. My body was filled with delight and tears of joy silently fell and moistened the lapel of my robe. And the young Dōgen vowed to transmit this practice to Japan, and it's since been transmitted to us in the West. These Buddhist robes, they're very interesting stories of how they originated. Um, And uh, apparently the Buddha was walking along the street one day with Ananda and uh, Someone had seen another ascetic and thought it was a Buddhist monk, but apparently it wasn't a Buddhist monk, and uh, the man suggested to the Buddha that maybe the Buddhist monks had some kind of uh, robe where they could be identified. And, uh, and the Buddha, according to the legend, uh, saw these rice paddies and thought that it would be really lovely, the little paths and the little squares of the rice fields to design a robe Based upon the, the the rice fields and paddies, and uh, in order to um, practice uh, non-attachment, they uh, would would go to you know these these pieces of cloth from rubbish tips and funeral parlors or whatever, and um, um, and they would sew together uh, these robes from all these this cloth which was seen as being worthless and valueless. And then they would dye them and take all the all the primary colors out of them, so you would have a very plain color. Um, so the um, the robe became a kind of practice and a teaching in itself. And um, and when we come to the in our Zen practice, the rakasus are a symbol of the robe, and the robe is a symbol of the of, of Buddha and the the teachings and um, so when we receive when we become buddhists we receive the robe or the Rakasu as a symbol of faith in the, the buddhist teachings and uh, apparently this also means we, we become free from ego attachment if only it was that easy another n- nice quote from Okamura uh, is that the construction of the akisa symbolizes the emptiness of the five skandhas. The pieces come from all over, I sew together and stay for a while in the shape of a robe. So the Yakisa is an example of emptiness or egolessness, impermanence, interdependent origination. So the robe is much more than a uniform. It embodies the basic teachings of Buddha. Making, sewing the Akisa or the Rakisu is a practice and a teaching. It's only recently that I've started wearing my Rakisu every time I sit zazen in the mornings, even when I am sitting on my own. I've grown very fond of my rakasu through doing that and appreciate how my rakasu symbolizing the robes makes visible this formless field of benefaction that is our true nature. Our true nature, our awakened awareness is often likened to light. Light illuminates the world of the 10,000 things. and our awareness discloses the 10,000 things. But our true nature is not a thing. It it cannot be seen. Wearing the Rakasu is like a reminder of our true nature and the web of interdependence and deep interconnection with all beings. It is something that is visibly beautiful, something I can touch and wear around my neck, connecting me in a visceral way to the teaching and the practice. I think this ritual of wearing the Rakisu and chanting the verse is a lovely example of how ritual supports our practice. To quote from opening the Dharma verse in reference to the Rakasu and the verse of the Kisa, now we can see it, hear it, hold and maintain it. Thus we're able to continue to transmit this wonderful teaching from one generation to the next. So ritual is a very important form of religious practice. Indeed, ritual is practice, in the non-separation from the ritual, we are continuously reenacting enacting Dogen's teaching of practice realization, bringing the sacred to life. The other example I wanted to touch on was bowing because bowing is often something which Westerners feel uncomfortable doing. So I think it's really important to make a distinction between religious bowing as in Zen and culture in general bowing. There are a lot of cultural differences between the West and Japan, so in Western culture bowing is understood as an often as an act of submission to authority or even of self abasement. Especially where egalitarianism is highly valued, nobody bows even to heads of state because it is considered demeaning. Westerners who may want to take part in Buddhist rituals and ceremonies, therefore, are often uncomfortable with bowing. But in Asia, bowing has many functions and meanings. Most often it is simply an expression of respect. It is also an expression of modesty, arguably a virtue more highly valued in Asian cultures than in the West. In parts of Asia, such as Japan, people bow instead of shaking hands. A bow can mean hello, goodbye, thank you, or you are welcome. If someone bows to you, most of the time it is impolite not to bow back bowing can be very egalitarian, however the cultural practice of bowing in Japan can often be a form of status signaling and uh, Larry who's practiced in Japan himself may be able to share some of his experience of that as well. So it's important to make a distinction between cultural bowing in general and bowing as a religious practice in our Zen practice. And even the distinction between Zen and Christianity or Western religions because in Western religions often bowing to an altar is an act of worship or supplication. This is generally not true in Buddhism, however, bowing in Buddhism is a physical expression of the Buddha's teaching. It is a dropping away of the ego and whatever we are clinging to. It is not an act of self abasement, but rather an acknowledgement that self and other are not really two separate things. When bowing to an image of the Buddha or another iconic figure, a Bodhisattva figure, one is not bowing to a god. The figure may represent the teachings and enlightenment. It may represent our true nature, that is, our original self. In that sense, when you bow to a Buddha figure, you are bowing to yourself. And there is a Zen verse that goes, Bower and what is bowed to are empty by nature. The bodies of oneself and others are not two. I bow with all beings to attain liberation, to manifest the unsurpassable mind and return to boundless truth." And most of you might be familiar with this lovely book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shanru Suzuki. Um, just a quick quote from that. Shanru Suzuki says, "'After Zazen, we bow to the floor nine times. In the uh, Diamond Sangha and in Ordinary Mind Zen, that's usually three times. By bowing we are giving up ourselves. To give up ourselves means to give up our dualistic ideas. So there is no difference between Zazen practice and bowing. Usually to bow means to pay our respects to something which is more worthy of respect than ourselves. But when you bow to Buddha, you should have no idea of Buddha You just become one with Buddha. You are already Buddha himself. When you become one with Buddha, one with everything that exists, you find the true meaning of being. When you forget all your dualistic ideas, everything becomes your teacher and everything can be the object of worship. So just to conclude, um, Zen, a broad spectrum of practitioners. In the Zen way study program it states, Zen welcomes people from different religious backgrounds or people with a more secular humanist background with a genuine interest in personal and social transformation through Zen and ethical practice. There is no requirement to identify as a Buddhist. However, the ordinary mind Zen school is nonetheless grounded within the larger Soto Zen Buddhist tradition and, of course, Soto Zen is grounded in the larger tradition of Buddhism. I would hope that Oz Zen is able to contain and respect individual differences and accommodate a broad spectrum of practitioners, ranging from those who take Jukai and were Rakusu, to those who see themselves as fellow travelers or spiritual friends with a more secular humanist identity. After all, there is only one river with many wells, full of a diversity of shades of meaning and colors. There you go, I did it. I've stopped at 30 minutes. So So we can can open up now for um, some uh, discussion. We've got um, half an hour. So feel free to ask any questions you like or share anything you want to share from your own experience. Be very grateful. And if it's okay, we'll just keep the recording going, if that's okay. So, David, did you want to go first? Yeah, I just wanted
2: to say thank you. I feel like that was very good to have uh, that on top of the talk two weeks ago. Um, I feel more... Grounded and connected to what you're saying, in terms of, I guess the, um, the precepts of um, Zen, and there is sort of things set out about how we we are all uh, may engage with this. We're, uh, and, and a fortnight ago, I guess I was a bit sort of stirred up and wondering if 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 we were sort of suddenly heading in some direction that I hadn't quite realised, um, I'd signed up to, if you know what I mean. Um, wasn't particularly stuck in that, in that sort of response, but it's just good to keep the conversation going. And I I feel like you've clarified a lot of things for me just in that talk, I guess, uh, kind of theologically and, and and also just in terms of what the um, connections are with other associations and not and with the concept of religion and um, the organization that I guess we're we're part of
1: here and now so yeah thank you thank you Thank you David. So how are we all sitting with this at the moment? Phil?
0: I thought I'd uh, break the uncomfortable silence. Um, Andrew, I think it's really good that you've explained um, a lot of your thinking behind this in the last couple of weeks. Um, probably it's probably something I've been thinking a little bit about was that when we were able to meet as a singer face-to-face over the last few years, we I feel like we tried a number of different um practices, in terms of chanting and ritual. Uh, and I, I kind of got the feeling at times that you were you were testing things out with us in a way because you were introducing new things. And I guess I'm wondering where, when we can finally get back together more often, where we might land in terms of a sort of um, a, a practice that, is i know from can't really think of the right word but a bit more consistent in terms of the, the rituals we do embrace and that, the sutras we engage in all those sorts of things because it seems to me in zen from my limited knowledge there's an awful lot of stuff out there that we could take on and i, I personally would like to see it um, as simple and straightforward as possible
1: that's just an observation yeah well that's good, Phil, because I'll be um, looking looking forward to you helping me with that task. Yeah. I, I agree with you. We need consistency. And a lot of the um, I mean, starting out from scratch and, and building this Sanger from scratch, it, it has been a bit of a experimental testing, seeing what we can we can develop and evolve that kind of like holds us all, some of us with different know different perspectives and practices um and um i I think that's what i'm trying to do so I'm, i'm wanting to get hone in on that now and uh and and get some consistency there yeah
3: Um, I found it beneficial to get a clarification of the different paths or the the four different ways, Andrew. That was very good clarification. And um, personally, I've had other involvements, particularly with Tibetan Buddhism, but um, the way you describe the fourth way, uh, I feel part of and um that's that's welcomed it's a, it's um
4: yeah
1: thank you pingala I'm, I'm very very happy you feel part of it yeah i mean mm-hmm. i've been sitting with many many of you now for quite a few years and um i have a deep affection for the sangha i have a deep affection for the individual members of the sangha and uh, it's been amazing that we've managed to keep this going over the last couple of years as well i've been very grateful for your all of your participation in, in keeping it going in these uh, in these times, where a lot of meetings are being held on Zoom.
3: I also yes yeah it's good. I also appreciate that there's that um, Oz Zen is embracing other practices, which, as you know, I have my own personal path, which is not necessarily um, Buddhism. It could be interpreted as that, as such or Zen Buddhism, but it's it's definitely um has a very quite a different identification. So it it's it's really it's lovely to solidify the um the an inclusion that can be there. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah.
1: Thank you, thank you, Pingala. Yeah. And for others. Um, yeah.
3: Yeah.
5: Michael? Um, Hi, Andrew. Thank you. Um, It was good this week. Yeah. Let me know, please, anyone, if my voice doesn't come through clearly. Um, Yeah, I appreciated this week (coughs) how you um, outlined more more personal and more detailed uh, aspects of what this what you put out last time um on a on a personal level <clears throat> i find it uh, um particularly s- speaking to to my own Um, challenges, I guess, around um, how how I might relate to a religion or religious practices in my personal journey because um, I've been quite allergic to, to the authoritarian and somewhat regimented aspects of religion i've been involved in so i'm cautious that's that's a good challenge for me <clears throat> um, secondly coming on to the executive or the management group earlier this year um, at the AGM i acknowledge that there's been a lot of discussion earlier that i Have not been part of that, maybe covered quite a lot of this. But as a member, I I found it kind of discombobulating to not feel all this kind of of clearly discussed at the management group. So I felt kind of discombobulated and confused by that. But I, I come from what I wanted to bring today for myself is a spirit of no separation which uh, yeah is is for me about um, communication and uh, at at all levels yeah um, so I'm glad we're having this discussion and I'm Glad we'll have other discussions elsewhere as well. In that sort of spirit, I would like to think. Yeah. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Michael. Uh, Angie. Thanks. Um, Yeah,
6: thank you, um, Andrew, for... Your talk today and explaining some of those um those various ways, I suppose for me I've been involved for a few years now, um, and I suppose I became a little bit um oh, alert or whatever when I found that um, that it was. Um, that the OzZen was becoming a religious organisation or being registered as that or whatever, because I, I suppose I would never have joined it had I thought I was joining a religious organisation. And I think you're quite aware of some of my views on that, Andrew, from over the years. Um, I'm very comfortable with the idea of being a, um, a fellow traveller, um, but yeah, it's it's um, I suppose a different concept from what I um, what I originally signed up for. And I just feel a bit funny about. Well, do I continue to? Sign up to a religious organisation when that's sort of not what I had particularly wanted mm-hmm. to do. However, as you know, I really um, I enjoy attending the um you know the meditations mm-hmm. the Tuesday and Friday mornings the silent ones particularly for me it's very much um an an mm-hmm. experiential thing and I really appreciate being able to um, participate um, on that level some of the um, some mm-hmm. of the um, intellectual side of it, I suppose, it doesn't hold the same interest for me. But I do like to practice together. Um, and I have really appreciated over the years, Andrew, your, um, you know, welcoming and openness of, of those um, various positions, you know, including mine. Um, so, yeah, it's just a bit of a reflection. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Angie. I hope you, you continue to uh, join us for the mornings and, and the Sundays as well. Yeah. Your perspective is always very welcome, as you know.
3: Uh,
1: Jill, Jill from Malston.
4: Uh, Yeah, thank you, Andrew, for going over a bit what you talked about last week. And just on from a bit from what Angie said, I think I get where you're coming from and I'm happy with the ritual and chanting because I think that helps with state of mind. And signing up as a religious organisation, my recollection of that is partly that it was going to help us. To become registered as a charity, which then had the flow on that we could then have a, a bank account to help separate Osen from your um, career and livelihood. But so that's okay. But just some of the the um. The verse that you read today there was just I get a little bit uncomfortable that it seemed to be saying there's a mass of people out there that could benefit and we need to bring them in or I don't know if you can remember the one that I'm talking about but so it just there was just a bit of like oh this Buddhism's better than you know than what other people are doing but that's the answer so I don't know if you know the one I meant. It was a simple four or five-line verse.
1: but the, uh, the, the 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 four great vows. Yeah, was it? With what is that for vows? The many beings are numberless. I vow to awaken them. Yeah,
4: that
1: one. Yeah, that seems to cause a lot of people difficulties. Um, it's really essential to the Zen path. And, and, again, that has to be seen from the perspective of non-separation. Um I mean that the thing about Zen as a religious practice is it doesn't get caught up in the identification with Buddha or with these kinds of um, um, it, it's um, it, it kind of like we, we 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 use ritual as a, in a way as a skillful means um, religious practice. Um, from a non-dual perspective, um, from a non-separation perspective, it's important not to get caught up into the identification as a religion. I mean, that's part of the Zen practice. Um, Remember from the Zen practice, ultimately, um, everything is interdependent and interconnected in that sense. There's the one and the many, the many and the one. and when you're saving yourself or awakening yourself, you're awakening all beings in that sense. And um, Zen teaches and practices non-separation. We, we we acknowledge the the beauty of the diversity of the forms of life, the 10,000 things. That includes human culture. Human culture is not separate. We're not trying to force everybody into a one conformity of oneness. We, we celebrate diversity as well. And that includes the, the flowering of different spiritual paths, the flowering of different religions. Chan Zen Buddhism is a very, very unusual and distinctive path because it is a non-dual path. Most, most non-dual paths are hidden in, 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 the, in the religions. but Many religions are not non-dual. And uh, Zen's a non-theistic religion. It doesn't separate ourselves from uh, a a God. There's no God in Zen that we're separate from. Um, See, what I've always uh, uh, sort of, I guess, had a dialogue with myself over these past 30 years is, how does one practice? What context does one practice in? What culture do we build? You can't... practice without building a culture? Do I go and follow a secular a secular spiritual teacher like Eckhart Tolle? Do I become a devotee of his? Um, do I join a Christian church and use that as my practice? Um, in, in a sense, it's not possible to be separate from culture. No matter what you do, you're gonna be identified in some way. If you identify as a non-Buddhist, that's still an identification. You can't not be identified in culture. That's just a fact. Now, we've all had different experiences of religion. The the quote that I was giving at the beginning was about, let's see how we can revision a religious life, a religious practice for this century. What does it mean? What have we lost in secularization? What have we lost in that? What can religion offer us? can religion offer us something that's really important? Or or do we keep it secular? And I totally understand that. I'm not anti-secular. But um, the Zen Buddhist tradition is a religious tradition. And it's a unique religious tradition and one that we have to continue to reinvent and grow every generation. And it's only just started in the West. It's only been going for a few decades, really. It's very exciting. We are part of that. We were part of that revisioning Zen for the West. We're part of that process in Australia.
4: Okay. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Well, Larry.
7: I'm mute. Yeah. um, I think part of, I mean, major part of the issue is that word religion and all its loaded connotations in the West with, with Christianity and um, that belief in God or, or theism. Um, and that scares a lot of people. You know, we've got statues and things. and it's, I know that's not what it's about, but that, that's a scary idea. You end up in a cult, with, with, um, which is what we're not trying to do. But um, I tend to not use the word religion when I'm talking about Buddhism, um, and and just talk about a path or a road. But talk, tend to avoid the word religion. I understand why we've done it in terms of the registration, and yes, I get that. But that's that's my personal preference to talk about a path rather than talk about it as a religion. And I'm the traditionalist. <laughs> Okay, perhaps we've got something
1: to learn from that very wise observation, Larry. Thank you.
3: It's. I find it interesting that um, that Buddhism or Zen Buddhism or Zen. Will will encompass, say, a religious point of view of a Christian or of a Druid or of whatever, um, a, a pagan even. Whereas, what would you? I, I forget the terms that you use. The first path perhaps would not embrace those beliefs or
1: those up practices. Yeah. And
3: that that I see as an interest. Uh,
1: yeah. I have to wait. Yeah. I mean, one of the characters. Did you get any of that? You, you, yeah, you were breaking up a little bit. But like, um, I mean, in the Zambo Zen tradition, the Diamond Sangha tradition, um, Kun Yamada, one of the Japanese teachers, had a lot of um, Catholic uh, priests uh, went along to the Zen tradition. Uh, and a number of Catholic priests have actually been transmitted through the Zen lineage, um, which is interesting. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, one could, I, I would imagine if that's the case, then uh, one could be uh, practicing Druid and also have transmission through the Zen lineage. Um, uh, yeah. hmm. I mean, th- I mean so it, Zen doesn't get caught up in those kinds of identities.
3: No, this is the difference. I think, and it, as as has already been noted, is that it's not separative, so it, it encompasses all. I find that um, the Zen practices and and philosophies and learnings are very much embraced in a Druid path.
1: Yeah, but we have a and, w- and
3: vice versa. Yeah, yeah.
1: But The Zen tradition is all, and the Buddhist traditions wonderful tradition going back many hundreds of years with a wonderful mm. culture and a wonderful tradition why would we throw all that away
3: mm. Mm.
1: it's not possible to start from scratch yeah. you have to start from some tradition well, it's
3: relating to a tradition it's relating to past practice. yeah to to gain those loans yeah. yes yeah.
1: Yeah. You're still breaking up a little bit, Pingala. Yeah.
3: Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said Druidism is an interesting example, as such. You know, in, in that it's it's um it's a lot of culture, but there are many threads yeah. that have been pulled into pulled pulled into the now. It's an interesting example. Ah.
4: Uh,
1: yeah don't worry <laughs> we'll talk more about it later. It's okay yeah I'm just aware that we're getting close to 12 o'clock uh, so just time for one last comment or sharing or question and uh, we have to have a we're having an informal committee meeting at 12 o'clock yeah. David.
2: A little bit of a sidetrack with what you just said, but just to help clarify things for me, and I know this would probably be on the website, but um, who, 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 is, who comprises the committee, just to get an idea of the organisational
1: side of the... Well, ra- raise your hands if you're on the committee. And then the, there's Nita, who's not here. And... Uh, uh, is there anyone else who's not here? There's uh, back. Michael, Larry, I think it's everybody apart from, because Jill's on the committee as well, Jill, both Jill's are on the committee, yeah, I think it's just Nita not here.
5: Okay. Mm, thanks.
1: And then Kate used to be on the committee, time's gone past. <laughs> All right. So, as, as I said before too, if and if you want to continue this discussion with me personally, either send me an email or book a time on the, uh, the Tuesday mornings, every second Tuesday morning from 9 till 11. I have some little time slots you can book into if there's any of these issues you want to continue discussing with me. Either way is fine, emails mm. or book an interview.
5: Mm. Mm. Just going to sneak something in. Um, uh, what came to mind after you said something before was that old Zen saying, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Yeah. And I take that as a clarion to be vigilant for mistaking the sign for the way. To, to not fall into reifications to use what you said last time and I, I feel that for me and maybe for some others too the the the, the, the fear of falling into that with uh, religious practice may be a, a, a challenge um I know there are lots of things that could be said about it, but that just came to mind. Even to not fall into that spell with Buddhism.
1: Yeah, thanks, Michael. And you're getting be, a bit, you're getting a I bit, crack, you're getting a bit crackly. Um, but yeah, that's a great quote. I think it's from Lin or Rinzai, Apparently, not quite sure. But um, yeah, that's a lovely example of the Zen teaching. You see, the, the brother on the on the road kill him. You know. Um, the Buddha is not separate to who you are.